we need a lot of both of those qualities in order to live our lives, in order to grow in the Dhamma, in our hearts. So from what I see and hear in the various communities that I'm connected with and what I feel in my own heart, I see that for many of us, there's a growing sense of urgency to help, to do what we can, to offer our gifts to the world, as insignificant as they may seem to us, to be able to touch the world, which is increasing in complexity, increasing in speed, to be able to touch the world with simplicity, to be able to touch the world with slowing down, to be able to touch the world with kindness. Equally as strong, there's a growing spiritual urgency for many of us, because we're here, to go within, to go deep within, to that place where we know with utter clarity the landscape of our hearts, the landscape of our minds, to be able to touch our own hearts with kindness. This is what enables us to have that kind of clarity, to be able to come to ourselves with a gentleness, with a kindness. And then we can give that to the world. So this takes a lot of compassion and courage to be able to do that. And you all know that that's true, and I'm not speaking from theory. It takes a clear view of how it actually is in the layers of our hearts as they are exposed to really become free from suffering. It takes that gentle acceptance of the places that we're caught in, the pain of the body, the pain of the mind, learning how to gently accept those places bit by bit. It takes a clear view of the places where there is a sense of freedom and not get identified with that either. In fact, it takes sometimes for many of us an acceptance of when there is freedom, really to see that over and over again. Sometimes that's harder for many of us to really know when the mind is already free in different moments. This takes such sobering honesty and unflinching courage and a kind of rare caring for ourselves and for the world. It's not a kind of caring we can learn from everyday life always. There are some times, of course, we can. But it takes an ability to really be with those layers, deep layers that get exposed in our practice. A willingness to open to what are called the underpinnings of our personality. The wholesome, the unwholesome, and to expect uh, that there can be a sense of freedom in recognizing what's going on moment to moment. I love the way that Agnes Au, um, an Asian woman, spoke about it in the Shambhala Sun. This was an article she wrote about practicing. 
and about exposing those underlying layers, those psychophysical tangles of the mind, of the heart. She says, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace and in so doing to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. The vividness of an unfiltered life. That would be wonderful. And knowing at times that we can experience that and we have experienced that moments at a time to see the inner world clearly, to see the outer world clearly. This is what our practice is all about and why it's so worth going through the hard bits of the practice. So through this process that we're all going through, we discover the habitual forces of the mind, those forces of the inner terrain that have an effect on us, of course, and have an effect on the outer world. They especially have an effect on the outer world when we don't really even know that they're there, that they're happening. They have an unwholesome effect. But when we know that they're happening, we can uh, be mindful of how we're acting out. Through this vividness, we notice the forces that create peace, those ones that uh, when we speak or act, there's harmony in our hearts and all around us. We learn to recognize this more and more. And in the recognition of when this is happening, we develop it, we nurture it, we give it energy. We electrify that path in our minds so that it lights up and that path is so easily seen when we are uh, in the midst of certain conditions and we don't know what to do, somehow that path lights up more clearly for us and we can take that path. Because of this unfurling process, we notice the habit patterns that create unrest, that create distress and disharmony within us and all around us. Those patterns that bring up fear Of course, these are noticed all too easily. But it's better that they're noticed instead of delusion coming all around these parts and we just let them go by without doing anything about them to transform them. The mind continues to perpetuate those thoughts, those feelings, The speech continues to speak it out. The action continues to act it out. But in our practice here, we try to bring clear awareness to everything, the wholesome, the unwholesome. And when we notice the unwholesome arising, we don't nourish that. We see that it's arising. We don't nourish it by refraining from acting it out from speaking it out, refraining from letting the mind kind of perpetuate in thought around it. I remember um, 
not too long ago when I was practicing in Burma. And there were a lot of unwholesome thought patterns just going round and round in the mind. And I would report to the teacher many, many times about it. Um, many, many times means maybe three or four times in, in uh, interviews. And one time he was so strong, so strongly compassionate with me that, and I was telling him, it happens a lot in walking practice. And he said, in when you're walking, when the thought comes up, when these thoughts come up, and you see it come up in the mind, let it go down in the step and just go into the ground. And he said it very forcefully. He said, let it go into the ground. And I never heard him say anything shamanic like that before, but it was really a strong sense of compassion and a strength of um, wisdom that he gave me at the time. And really, I, I noticed how relinquishing unwholesome thought can happen that way when we have strong intention like that around it. The Buddha's teaching is all about nurturing what creates a wholesome sense in ourselves and around us, disarming what is harmful, letting go, relinquishing what is harmful when we see that coming up. This is why we practice mindfulness. But we don't practice mindfulness for the sake of mindfulness. Of course, when we keep practicing, it nurtures it. It gets momentum. It carries on by itself. But we practice mindfulness for the chance for wisdom to develop. So mindfulness alone is not enough. We nurture the wholesome. We refrain from the unwholesome so that wisdom can develop. This is what we're practicing mindfulness for. It's not enough to just be present. We have to know what we're present for, relinquish what is harmful, nourish what is wholesome. And wisdom does grow. Without doing this kind of quiet investigation, this inner investigation that we're all doing here, clearly recognizing the inner landscape, whatever it is, whether it's painful or pleasurable, without doing this kind of work, this kind of investigation, we can never hope to have really a truthful effect, harmonious effect on the world. Because maybe from deep inside we realize that we're not coming from a thoroughly a pure-hearted place. We want to be able to touch the world with wisdom, with a kind of kindness that's very uh, deeply nourishing to others and comes from the deepest place possible in us. Sure, we come from places that are maybe we don't think are so deep but are good enough, and that's good. There's always more that we can see within our own hearts. There's always more that we can bring a sense of mindfulness to so we can nurture the wholesome, refrain from the unwholesome. Granted, our practice may not radically change the world. And if that were our 
objective, we would be disillusioned and disappointed over and over again. Because this is the way of the world. It has uh, unwholesome bits to it. It has wholesome bits to it. It's, there's happiness and, and sorrow. There's uh, gain and loss. There's fame and disrepute. This is the way of the world. What we can change and transform is our own heart. And this is our kind of our highest responsibility as a human being. There's a possibility for that. There's a real possibility for that for each one of us. Even when we're just sitting here in the stillness and we're not really doing anything out there in the world to help the chaos or to help the hunger or the abuse or uh, whatever else, the, the disharmony that's going on out there. We're doing a lot here by just taking the precepts every day, by doing our best to refrain from harming any living being, to refrain from uh, action that harms ourselves or others. Imagine if there were uh, everyone in the world who just took one of these precepts and even for five minutes really kept that precept, how it would transform a lot in this world. Well, we're doing our part by being here and taking the precepts and really nourishing what is good, refraining what causes disharmony. So this practice requires a lot of kindness to ourselves, a lot of courage to open to what is hard. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right. It just stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts. And this is huge. This is much bigger than we can even imagine. This has an infinite outreach in the world. Those of you who have been practicing for a while, which is probably all of you, you might look back on your own life and see the effect that you have now when times are good in your heart, the effect that you have now on the world immediately around you, and see that you can be the the calm place in the storm for a lot of people. Those vibrations go out in the world when you feel a sense of safety inside of yourself because you know you have a kind of confidence that you won't harm. So this is powerful. This is something worth doing our work for. Usually compassion is thought of in terms of helping others or saving others, facing the suffering in the world out there with courage and acting to relieve it. Of course, this is totally true, acting to relieve the suffering in the world. And we want to do this. 
But just as important is including, opening, and touching the truth of suffering in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own lives. How do we experience the truth of suffering? And this will be talked about more in later Dhamma talks. But we experience this as pain in the body, of course, as hunger or illness or or our own death, or facing the death of another, or the illness or hunger of another. It's pain in the body, pain in the mind, in the heart, like sadness, or hatred, or holding tightly to jealousy, or resentment. This kind of suffering is the fickleness of the uncontrollability of the mind, we are all coming to accept as the mind touches it over and over again how the mind just does what it wants, really, out of habit. The uncontrollability in the moment of the mind. Of course, we train it so that future moments, it doesn't run in those same habit patterns. But the in the moment uncontrollability of the mind is a lot of suffering. There's the inability to hold on to anything, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. This is also suffering. Everything is always changing, nothing to hold on to, nothing we can hold on to. But we think that we can, and we suffer for this. Becoming familiar with the vulnerability of all of life. Just becoming familiar with all of this vulnerability I just spoke about. Just coming close to it. It's painful. But it's well worth the pain, coming close to it. It's hard to open to, but the mind and heart become stronger. It comes into more balance kind of an organic balance, just being able to touch those places over and over again instead of avoiding them. We're not thrown off center. We feel more in balance because there are places that are familiar to us, familiar with an aliveness, not familiar with a kind of denial or boredom that we turn away and we don't see it so clearly, but kind of an alive uh, connection with it, that kind of familiarity. So it allows us to relax into it more. This is what being able to be so compassionate with our own suffering that we can come close to it and allow ourselves to accept it, to know it, relax around it. So, of course, compassion for others grows because we know how it is for ourselves. The mind and heart are less caught, are less drowning in delusion around it. There have been times for myself, and I'm sure for you in your practice, in your lives, at home, in your workplace, when you've seen the rage of anger 
the kind of restlessness of anxiety, the um, uncontrollability of fear that comes up in your own hearts. And when you really come to touch this very, very closely and know it in the moment and understand the conditions around that surround it or that cause it to arise and also that cause it to cease, when we see this in ourselves and then we see it in others, we have more understanding. We have more compassion. We're less resistant to it. There is less veneer of blame on others. There's less righteous indignation or an idealistic view of that it should be different. It should be different because we see that this is how it is. We come to see it more with more compassion, more understanding. There have been countless times in my own life when I couldn't understand the anger of someone else or um, that a person was jealous of me or someone close to me or that there was fear about doing something that I thought why should there be any fear about that? You know, this, this is easy. But when I came across times like that in myself, and I really touched those moments, sometimes with a cringe, but then with some understanding, I could say, oh, I remember that time that I didn't understand that person because they were going through fear or jealousy or anxiety or worry, and now I feel it so closely in my own heart. And that kind of opens up a kind of compassion for myself, for the other person. The mind has the courage to face these with gentleness. And we all spontaneously know that, those times when it happens. It's helpful when we spontaneously know those times when the mind is gentle with a moment of difficulty to really put light around it. We put light around it by being mindful. Uh, Manindra would always say, mindfulness is like the sun. It casts out all the shadows uh, at a certain angle, of course. It casts out the darkness. We can see everything clearly. So bring the light of mindfulness around it. Brings us closer to freedom. The Buddha said, There is one thing, O monks, the not seeing of, which keeps us bound on this cycle, and that is the noble truth of suffering. The not seeing of the noble truth of suffering keeps us bound on this cycle. So when we open to suffering, we have a chance for freedom. But when we deny it, when we resist it, when we overlay veneer of of blame, when there's so much judgment, indignation, 
then we're not really getting close. We're just creating more layers of suffering. And it stands to reason that if we continue to do this, there's more suffering that we have to work with, more pain that we have to deal with. All of us have had to deal with people who are caught in anger, blaming us or accusing us, of course, of maybe something that has no basis for blame or accusation, but it's something that's it's in their minds and not really in reality. And of course, it can activate a lot of anxiety, a lot of anger, a lot of feeling of defensiveness, of vulnerability in our own hearts. So I've gotten caught in the cycle plenty of times, and it's taken a long time to learn from this, feeling the thickness of the layers being formed by blaming back, acting defensively, just stirring up the pot more and more instead of kind of letting it settle, letting the dust settle. A few years ago, not too long ago, a person that was undergoing some stress approached me around a certain subject and started screaming and yelling at me. And at that moment, I realized that that doesn't happen to me very often. I thought back in my life, and except from, for when my girls were teenagers, I didn't experience that very much. And when they were teenagers, it was like, yeah, okay, this is what they do. But when somebody else did that, you know, it was like, it was shocking to me. And I really, I, I was literally shaking. I didn't know what to do. And this is after years of mindfulness practice, you know, years of... And I think that just kind of the vulnerability of the body and of the mind was showing up first. So I was going through listening to that and at, a, at times, you know, kind of like um, my claws would come out too, you know. <laughs> and um, not not so hurtfully, but just kind of more protectively uh, for myself. It was difficult for me to bear, really, really. I mean, now when I think of it, my heart kind of flutters and it's kind of down in my stomach now, just even remembering it. But there were moments during that time also that I clearly remember that there were moments of spontaneous compassion, not just for her, but for us, you know, because I could see, first of all, I could see in my own heart, oh, this is hard. You know, I, I could see the anger and the like, the wanting to kind of push back, you know, kind of give out some cruelty. But it didn't do that. It was, it was mostly about standing my ground and needing to create boundaries. And so... When this moment of compassion came, it was of a, a moment of connection because I couldn't connect with her out of, um, because of seeing her anger and feeling my anger. But I could connect with her when I felt my compassion for that anger in her, that compassion for that anger in myself. 
I mean, at that moment, I wasn't figuring this all out. But in retrospect, I can look back and say, that was our connection. And things really softened out between us in that moment. Of course, it kind of revved up a bit but after that. But there were moments when I could just feel that softness coming up in me. Really seeing that in that moment, it wasn't so personal. It was kind of a universal sense of, yeah, this is really suffering. This is really dukkha. Dukkha means suffering. This is the truth of dukkha. It's not, I wasn't thinking like that in the moment, but it was like the feeling was that this is what all beings go through. This is not unusual. This is part of life. This is how it is. It was beyond the personality level in those moments. And that's what really stood out during that time. It said that the proximate cause for compassion to arise is the perception of suffering, the perception of dukkha. So if we can really get close to it, this kind of truth of compassion can also come up. I looked up in the dictionary of etymology where the words come from, compassion, and come is together with, just like in Spanish, con is like with. And passion is not, sometimes we think of it as, you know, just having this energy, this passion for life. And I've heard that so often. But when I looked this up in the dictionary of etymology, it said, Enduring suffering. This is what passion meant in this dictionary of etymology. Enduring suffering. This is where it came from, as in the passion of Christ. The endurance of suffering. And it's really being with it. And that really struck me because in the recent years, uh, the, the thing that's come up, the note or the label that's come up, in relationship to what's happening in my practice, is enduring, the enduring mind. Yes, the pain, the suffering is there, but the mind that's relating to it is the enduring mind, the enduring of this suffering. And so it has become kind of a word that comes up often for me in practice, enduring, bearing with, what's happening in this body, in this mind. In Pali, the word is karuna, karuna, which means making the hearts of the good quiver when afflicted with sorrow. Making the hearts of the good quiver when afflicted with sorrow. With the inclination to remove or alleviate what is painful. So it's not just making the hearts quiver, but the inclination to alleviate that pain, the kind of action, taking action. And this is not just with the world, but we have to remember this is with ourselves too. It's interesting with all this testing that they're doing with science and meditation that they're finding that There's a part of the brain that lights up um, when when these meditators are doing compassion 
And that part of the brain is the same part of the brain that is the readiness to act, that's connected with the readiness to act. So it's interesting how, you know, the Buddha's teachings of almost 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago, are coming together with science today. So the inclination to remove what's painful, the natural readiness to help. But it's hard to remember to help ourselves first. It may be that, you know, it's, it's, we're not having to help ourselves first and go to a three-month-long meditation retreat before we do something in the world. This may mean that we come to notice what's going on in our own minds first. We come to that kind of help for ourselves to alleviate that suffering even for a moment, to be able to maybe do some letting go of what is harmful, seeing that we might act out with cruelty and refraining from that, and then in the next moment being able to act. So it means really taking a moment to come to ourselves and maybe longer moments to come to ourselves before we take action, before we speak. So that we're able to respond in any situation in a way that's helpful to ourselves and to others. To ourselves because we're not putting seeds of unwholesome uh, thought, words, or actions in our own karmic stream. That's how we're helping ourselves so that they won't sprout again in the future. And of course, we're helping others so that we're not harming others. We're creating a sense of safety around others that we can act maintaining our boundaries, but we can also act to try to help others even when they are, um, in a way, not being nice to us. Sometimes the difficulties of life are opening to our own inner process is so hard to bear, though. It's, I mean, we can see for ourselves on the cushion or just in any moment of our time here on retreat. It's so, so hard to bear. I, I'm just trying to pick this up, how I read recently that... Um, when you become very, very mindful, suffering at first is like, you know, you're, you're stepping on a pebble. And it's easy to do, you know, when you're, when you're not so mindful. You step on a pebble, and we can bear it. But then as we're more mindful, it's like we take that kind of a small rock in our hand and we rub it in our hand on our hand, and it's harder, it's a little harder to bear. But when we become even more mindful, it's like taking a little stone, tiny little stone, and putting it in our eye, or feeling something like that in our eye, and it be- we become much more sensitive to it. And this is how mindfulness acts. And it acts this way as we are at the same time hopefully gaining in compassion and equanimity so that there can be a sense of balance, a sense of more uh, kindness to ourselves, softening around it, 
so we don't become harsh and brittle around those moments, turn away from it. When these moments come, though, it's impossible to muster up enough courage to be with it for me sometimes. And one of the last times I was practicing in Burma, there was this unrelenting pain in the body, this, you know, these old um, wounds that I have in the body from falling down and places of arthritis, of course, getting older. And sometimes there was a sense of equanimity and compassion with it, sometimes not. And um, hard, very, very hard to bear. I remembered during those times, but not all the time, I remember times when I would go to the teacher and tell the teacher about this difficulty, about this hard to bear. And sometimes it wouldn't be so much the pain in the body, but how the mind was reacting to it. That would be hard to bear. So many times I remember the teacher uh, would try to explain to me with compassion, this is how it is. If you want to be free, you must be able to open to this pain, to be with this. He said it in his own way, of course. These are my words. But I thought of how this teacher must have been um, that way to many other people, not just to myself, and how his teacher was like that for him. That's how he learned to be that way, kind of fiercely compassionate wasn't this soft compassion, but I read the compassion underneath his fierceness sometimes. And his teacher also, being that kind of, exhibiting that kind of compassion towards him. And then the teacher of that teacher, whom I don't know who it is, but I know the teacher of Upandita's Mahasi Sedao, the teacher of my other teacher, Manindra is also Mahasi Sedao. So I would remember the lineage. And all the way up to the Buddha. I don't feel so close to the Buddha, of course. I feel really close to my own teachers. It's interesting, um, the Tibetan teacher in my, uh, on my island, Lama Gyaltsen, he told me recently that your Lama is more important than the Buddha. And then later I understood why. You know, because we feel the closeness to that teacher that we can't feel sometimes to somebody that's 2,600 years away. But when I remember the compassion of all these people, giving compassion not just to myself, but to many other beings, I feel the strength of that. I'm connected with the lineage that I've been brought up in, and uh, the lineage that it connect the other lineages that this lineage connects to. And I feel really a strong, incredible sense of support. The Dharma has come to us because of the Maha Karuna, the great compassion of the Buddha. It's said that when the Buddha was enlightened, um, he thought at first to not teach, to not share what he knew. But a great being from another realm, it said in in this story, came to him and said that there are many beings 
with little dust in their eyes who will be able to see the truth and be liberated. And so out of compassion for those beings with little dust in their eyes, the Buddha began to give and offer the teachings. And the Four Noble Truths was expounded by the Buddha. So this kind of connection can give you courage when you feel connected to maybe all the small, compassionate acts in the world. It doesn't have to be to some great being, but to all the small, compassionate acts that you've received, that you've given in your life, in the world. The story of Mother Teresa, who was asked, you know, if she wanted to save all the beings in Calcutta who were suffering because really she was going around taking uh, and caring for all a lot of those beings that were on the street, especially those who were dying. And she said, no, she said, today I just want to help this one being. Because every day she thought she would go out and help one being. And so if you can think of those compassionate acts so many times, countless times, it will be able to perhaps outweigh the suffering that you face in the world, in your own heart. Courage comes from the French cour and also from the Spanish curaje, courage. It means, cor means heart. And it's a metaphor for inner strength. It's coming from the heart. It's really not like intellectually knowing what to do. But we feel that strength to know. It's a strength to know we can connect. We can connect with the goodness in the world. We can connect with the goodness in ourselves. If not for karuna, supporting the ability to open to what is difficult and seeing things as they are, wisdom would not arise. The near enemy of compassion is despair, an unhealthy grief, a pity for oneself or others. These are all ways that this kind of unhealthy grief or the near enemy of compassion manifests. It can seem like compassion. That's why uh, it's called the near enemy, because it can seem like it, because of its softness. But it's too soft. It doesn't have the inner strength to do something about ourselves or about others. It's more like drowning in sorrow, drowning in pity, no clarity, no balance, no wisdom is there. There's a story from uh, Asia about someone sinking deep in quicksand and the person having pity or uh, being overcome by grief for this person. Instead of taking a stick and handing it to that person so the person can hold on to the stick, that person who's not in the quicksand jumps into the quicksand with the person who is sinking and also sinks with that person. So this is the near enemy 
when we're overcome by unhealthy grief, that we can't help others. We can't, because we can't even help ourselves. Um, This is an old story, but it always comes in handy. Because my own stories are, they're more palpable than the faraway ones from Asia. Um, I remember a time when my oldest daughter was going through a difficult period. Actually, she just had some surgery for cervical cancer. And she's okay now. It's been seven years and it hasn't shown up. I always forget to say that. Then I get a lot of notes. Um, But she's okay. During the time she she had her surgery, I was with her in the hospital. And she um, was going through a lot of physical pain. And I was really going through anxiety, (laughs) the kind of pain inside myself because I didn't know what to do. The nurses weren't coming up with a remedy for her right away. And I felt like I was really sinking. And I was literally against the wall of the hospital room facing her. And she was um, going through her pain and saying, Mom, you've got to help. I need something. And I I just felt like having been up for a few nights and slinking down on the wall. And my daughter said to me, Mom, Mom, you can't do this. I need you to be strong. You know, you really can't kind of weaken under this. So I just picked myself up and had to keep going. But that was like that overwhelming grief. Um, It's a kind of grief we can get identified with. We get identified with the pain. We make it into my pain. We build it into some kind of monument to ourselves. As William Stafford says in one of his poems, these um, pains, this kind of suffering that we keep going through, they turn into pearls. They take on a luster. They accumulate as badges. That means, you know, we, we gain an identity with them. And we can't just see it objectively. We just sink into it and get lost into it. For a period of 20 years, I worked for a cemetery, helping people prepare for and face uh, the death of a family member or their own death. And during one period, there were quite a few children who had passed away, one after another, and I helped the families. They weren't really related, um, these children, one to another. But in helping the families, I think I started out with a sense of compassion. I felt I started out with a sense of strength in helping. But it turned into that unhealthy kind of grief, and I was really lost in the suffering, in the pity for the families. I had three children myself, and they were all young. And I think I was lost in some fear, too, about my own children's death. Uh, And um, I couldn't do my job. And I remember going up to um, a valley where there's a stream close to where I worked at the time. And all I could do was sit on a rock and put my feet in the water. And I really just had to let the water whoosh away 
that grief that was felt like was in the body, in the mind, being totally overcome by grief and sorrow. It's really important to know the difference between the strength of compassion and the weakness of this near enemy of overwhelming grief. The far enemy is cruelty, a harshness with ourselves. It's opposite, a harshness with others. It's called the far enemy because you can see it from afar, easily. It's so hard to bear that there's a tendency to strike out with our speech, like I was telling you about in that incident with a woman. We want to strike out with our speech. We want to slam doors and do those kinds of things with our action that exhibit our anger, our anxiety, our fear. We have a harshness in our own minds, even if we're not exhibiting the fear through the speech or through behavior. There's, uh, in our minds, there's judgment. There's our harsh opinions of people. There's um, all kinds of aggression in our heart, in our own minds, even though it's not spoken. When the far enemy is present, this kind of harshness, this kind of cruelty to ourselves and to others, we can't see clearly. And it only perpetuates the aggression. This is a story from Martin Luther King. This was in Sharon's latest book. It's such a down-to-earth story, and I, I want to read this to you. It's about how we perpetuate this harshness and how it keeps going in the world. The story is about life lessons. And this is Martin Luther King speaking. I think I mentioned before that some time ago, my brother and I were driving one evening to Chattanooga, Tennessee, from Atlanta. He was driving the car, and for some reason, the drivers were discourteous that night. They didn't dim their lights. Hardly any driver that passed by dimmed the lights. And I remember very vividly my brother, A.D., looking, looked over and in a tone of anger said, I know what I'm going to do. The next car that comes along here and refuses to dim the lights, I'm going to fail to dim mine and pour them on in all of their power. And I looked at him right back and said, Oh no, don't do that. There'd be too much light on this highway and it will end up in mutual destruction for all. Somebody got to have some sense on this highway. Somebody must have sense enough to dim the lights. And that is the trouble, isn't it? That's, that, as all, that as all of the civilizations of the world move up the highway of history, so many civilizations, having looked at other civilizations that refused to dim the lights, and they decided to dim theirs. Decided to refuse to dim theirs. Toynbee tells that out of the 22 civilizations that have risen up, all but about seven have found themselves in the junk heap of destruction. It is because civilizations fail to have sense enough to dim the lights, and we all end up destroyed because nobody had any sense on the highway of history. Somewhere, somebody must have some sense, 
must see that force begets force, hate begets hate, toughness begets toughness, and it is all a descending spiral, ultimately ending in destruction for everybody. Somebody must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate, the chain of evil in the universe. And you do that by love. That's a powerful story. I mean, it says it all right there. Can we dim our lights? This far enemy that comes out of the habit patterns of the mind, the harshness of resentment, judging, criticizing, cruelty to ourselves. I want to talk a little bit about cruelty to ourselves and about forgiveness as compassion. Actress Susan St. James lost her son in a plane crash. He was 14 years old. After years of anguish, rage, blame, and resentment, she had a kind of great compassion that came up in her. And she forgave everyone and everything. This was her hard-earned observation, and I'm quoting her. Resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. You know, it's something we just bear in ourselves. The judgment, the, the resentment, the feeling of, of blame that even if we're not saying it outwardly, but we're just ruminating about it over and over again. This is poison for our own hearts. But when we forgive, we give peace to ourselves. We give peace to others. When we come to intimately know the inner terrain of pain, of compassion, and where it can go from compassion back into pain, back into cruelty, or back into the pain of overwhelming grief or pity, when we come up close to this, as we are in our practice, we see that we can open to it. We see life as it is, not overlaying as we want it to be, but we come close to seeing things as they are. Wisdom arises in the mind from this coming close, which is helped greatly by this compassion. Compassion helps us to let go of those habit patterns that bring pain. It helps us to let go of the illusion we have that life, that anything in life can be permanent, that we can hold on to anything in life. We let go of uh, the thought that there is this permanent sense of self that's always abiding somewhere within us or outside of us. Let go of greed and hatred and delusion, ignorance. So this great letting go begins to happen, opening up to liberating wisdom. So I'd like to end with a very down-to-earth poem about letting go from the poems of... uh, Dana Falds. This one is from her book, Go In and In. 
the name of this poem is Letting Go. Let it go. Let go of the ways you thought life would unfold, the holding of plans of, or dreams or expectations. Let it all go. Save your strength to swim with the tide. The choice to fight what is here before you now will only result in struggle, fear, and desperate attempts to flee from the very energy you long for. Let go. Let it all go and flow with the grace that washes through your days, whether you receive it gently or with all your quills raised to defend against invaders. Take this on faith. The mind may never find the explanations it seeks, but you will move forward nonetheless. Let go, and the wave's crest will carry you to unknown shores beyond your wildest dreams. Let it all go and find the place of rest and peace and certain transformation. So let's sit for a few moments and let all those words go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.